configuration. All right. Well, we are pre we are pressing on. Thank you, Tom. We are. Uh, I, my goal is to finish chapter three today, and um, I've already started on working on four. So we'll see what happens. But um, today we're going to take a look at. Um, I think what we'll do is we will read from chapter three, verses ten through the end of the chapter, although our concentration will be on 17 and to the end. But to get a running start, let's uh, plan on doing that. We'll plan on Philippians chapter 3, verses 10 through 21. We'll read around the room. Um, let's start with a word of prayer. And then after that, we'll go to Denny's table, Dan's table, Gary's table, uh, Giuseppe's table, and our table. And we'll go from there. All right, let's start with a word of prayer. Father. Uh, we thank you again for the opportunity to study your word. We thank you for the way that you're encouraging us through this study. And we pray that you would open our eyes to what you have for us today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thirteen. the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform your lowly bodies so that they will like his they will be like his glorious body all right <clears throat> let's go back to uh, uh, verse 17 is where we kind of we left off and um, you know you've got to admit that it seems a little awkward a little uncomfortable um, if I was to, it would almost feel like I was bragging if I said, hey, follow my example today. You know, it sounds a little a little presumptuous on my part because first of all, I, I, know, I, know, my, I know the reality of my life and I'm going, 
yeah, you need, to, you need to strive for something just a little higher than what I am. That would really be the goal, I think. Um, but in, back in the first century, ancient, ancient times, this was not unusual for teachers to suggest that you follow their example. Um, I, I can even remember that um, as, a, as a young man growing up, uh, you know, I, I thought the world of uh, pastors, I thought that pastors were basically on a pedestal. And it wasn't until I graduated from college that I learned that that was not necessarily the case. And, and some of the men that I had held in uh, high esteem uh, ended up, uh, I ended up realizing they had definitely had feet of clay. You know, and uh, so I, I just r would urge you that as we read this to realize that we are talking about imitating uh, Christ as Paul imitates him. Follow him as he follows Christ. Not as, not, so, you know, if you're going to find a, a Bible teacher to follow, follow them as long as they stay true to following Christ. Where they deviate, you ought to deviate from them. Just saying. He goes on to say that, uh, and take note of those uh, who live according to the pattern we gave you. So not just, not just Paul himself, but for others around him. So even in this, in this group, if you see someone who is doing well in their Christian walk, let them encourage you with that. You know, I had a situation years ago, I had a situation where we ended up joining a church. Uh, it was, we were in between ministries. And I had, we had gone to this church, and I'm going, I just don't know that I can handle going to this church because they're not like us at all. But I visited because it was one of the ones that, I, that someone had suggested I take a look at that I have a certain amount of respect for. And then some people from the church came over and visited with us. This was back when visitation was a much more big thing than it is today, right? I was absolutely blown away that these people loved God, frankly, I think more than I did. At least they showed themselves as being better followers of Christ. And I'm going, how is that possible? Just like that spider that's coming down from the ceiling. <laughs> hmm. Okay. So, yeah. <laughs> that's a Marine Corps one. It's one of the, uh, it's repelling from it's the ceiling. From yeah. So then he goes on to talk about this. He says in uh, verse uh, four, as I have often told you before and now say again, even with tears that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ, their destiny is destruction. What, what does that mean to you? Their destiny is destruction. That's a possibility. Yeah. What else could it possibly mean? This life. Oh, okay. That's a possibility too. Uh, what what else? Could it be their rewards, their their giftings, their the, the things that they've worked for are, are going to be destroyed? Remember, we're talking about people here that Paul is talking about people who are probably believers. They're often Judaizers. They're people who are asking you to do a certain thing. They, they, they're talking about 
their belly here as we go on. Their God is their stomach and their glory is their shame and their mind is on earthly things. So think about this. Their obedience is to Old Testament dietary laws. And so as a result of that, they've kind of made their belly their, their, their God, if you will, or, or a portion of how they f function is based upon if they're obeying the law, then they're being good. Their, their bellies are part of that. So what are we talking about dietary restrictions? Leviticus, yeah, yeah. So we're talking about the, the Torah and the, the dietary rules and laws that are found in, in, in the Torah. It also talks about uh, probably the fact that they're, uh, that they're also, emphasis is not, and we, we, talk, we mentioned here in, in their bellies, but we talk about the fact they're looking for circumcision. So they're looking for their body. If you, so if you want to expand belly, the concept of belly into bodies, uh, you've got that, the fact that they want to glory in that. These people are, are spiritually minded. They're not spiritually minded. They're earthly minded. They hold on to earthly rituals and beliefs that God had given Israel. And they were opposing the heavenly blessings that Christ had given them. L listen to this. In, um, in Ephesians 1, it says, Praise be to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. They want to discount that. In, in Ephesians 2, 6, says, God raised us up with Christ and seated us in the heavenly realms with Christ Jesus. That's where we're going to be. That's where our position is, is to be seated with Christ. Um, Colossians 3, 1 through 3 says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated in the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above and not on earthly things which is what they're offering that they're talking about is earthly things here is what they're doing with the other thing that's kind of interesting is this idea of um, the belly can mean more than just um, more than just kosher food more than just a preoccupation with circumcision it it has a, some of the translations talk about your appetite and if you talk about that, it means more than just simply gluttony, because that's another possibility. We talk about, oh, their belly, their, their, you know, some of us, we love to go to the, you know, all-you-can-eat buffet, you know, that, that, and, and we go away being gluttonous when we're done with it. It's hard, man, because sometimes you go, I really want to enjoy this food. In, in ancient times, in Roman times, you know what they would do when it came to gluttony? They would, they would eat as much as they could until they were almost sick. Then they would go out and they would they would regurgitate all of their food, and then they would go back and enjoy some more. Those Romans had it right, man. That's why they, their food tastes so good. You know, I get over there and I get in trouble. So it's more than that, and and I think that what you can actually say is we're talking about uh, fleshly indulgences, bodily desires, which could mean more than simply just gluttony. To be anything that's a bodily desire. Looks like there was the same uh, uh, thing that was happening in the garden. You know, you come to the feast every day, you eat again, and some people go home starving from the feast. Yeah, when they when they practice some in, in in Corinth, instead of pra practicing a potluck where everyone got to share dishes, it was more of a picnic where you brought your own and ate your own. And uh, the problem was there would be people there that, you know, were having 
you know, really, really good food, you know, like maybe from a five-star restaurant, and so other people could barely put, you know, a hot dog in their lunch. Um, and, and so the issue is sharing and learning to realize that it's, a, it's all of us. Now, when we talk here about this idea of the fact that they are, um, their mind is on earthly things versus what we would term spiritually minded, what do you what do you think uh, what do you think when you think of spiritual someone who's spiritual what comes to mind often I think the spiritual and fellowship are words that are abused and misused so what what what, what does spiritual really mean is it uh, mystical is it uh, dreamy is it impractical is it uh, some distant thing that you're reaching for? Is that, you know, is that what being spiritual is? Just this walk-in-ness yeah. may seem spiritual. Um, yeah. You know, it's interesting, the gentleman that was here two weeks ago, Bradley. Yep, Bradley, yep. Well, I think that uh, this, the power of the, of the Holy Spirit was on him a lot more this time. He had spent a lot of time. And if, let's, let's fake it. If you're, face it, you're out in the middle of the, the jungle, there isn't a whole lot for, you, you know, you're, it's basically you and God and, you know, and, and whatever you've managed to take with you. It's not like they had internet and, you know, all the other things. So, yeah, they were, they were definitely, so. You know, I think when I think of somebody who's uh, who, who who puts on airs of spirituality, it reminds me of the uh, of some of the people that when they get up to pray, have you ever noticed that their their voice changes, their intonation changes, that suddenly they get this holy kind of sound, you know, that they think is holy, and they and so they're busy, uh, they go to great lengths to to tell God things that God already knows. You ever notice that they'll they'll busy you know, I'm always amazed at that. In fact, I'm always amazed at when we ask for prayer requests, and it's not that I don't think we should ask for that, but if you're in a prayer meeting and you're praying, why would you bother to share that if you're going to pray about it later? Isn't it double duty? You can often pray about the situation, and everyone else is going to gather what the problem is based upon your prayer. I'm just saying, just a side note. But this whole idea of how we get up there and we talk about, you know, change the way you say God, you know, suddenly it's God, you know, deep sound in my voice, and I, and I speak very, you know, very flowerly, and I put on lots of airs. That's not what God wants. I think what spirituality is just it makes the believer think more clearly about getting things done more efficiently in the spiritual way. A spiritually minded simply means to, to look at earth from heaven's point of view, not from earth's point of view. How often would that change? It would change for me drastically when I remember to do it. 
I start not worrying about things as much from a spiritual or from a, a, an earthly perspective. Why? Because this is this is temporary. There are things that I need to learn here that will help me, so I don't have to read. I don't have to learn them when I get to heaven. But boy, you know, in the meantime, um, <clears throat> Colossians three two says, "Give your hearts to heavenly things and not to passing things on earth." That's Colossians three two. Um, D. L. Moody used to say, "Scold Christians as being uh, so heavenly minded they were of no earthly good." You know, and and it, I think the problem is that we get caught up in that. And Mark eight thirty six says that what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Earth is not important. Heaven is important. And the way that we play out our 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 Christianity ought to be based on heavenly. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be. Right, uh, Matthew six. How often do we put our trust in our in the stock market? You know, in our in our retirement fund. We look at that and we go, you know, do I have enough to make it through? Well, I'm I'm as guilty as probably the next person, especially as I'm getting closer and closer to looking at, you know, what is it gonna be when I when if if and when I retire? Will I have enough money to last me till I re, you know, till I die? And yet God says, Why are you worrying about that? Plan, yes, but remember, God, man plans, what's the old saying, man plans and God laughs? James says it this way, he says, what is your life? It is a little vapor. It appears for a little time and it vanishes away. Instead of saying, I'm going to do this and thus and so, you should say what? I will do this if it's God's will, if God allows it. Always understanding that God is the one who's in control. I, I was quoting James there, yeah, and thanks for uh, yeah, yeah, bringing that up. I was, I was paraphrasing James, let's put it that way. Val's uh, extended, you know, amplified version of James. So Paul goes on to talk about the fact, he says, you know, look, uh, these teachers, they, they're revealed by their characters, by their character. Are they interested in earthly things? Or are they interested in spiritual things? Um, do they are they preoccupied with you know what they should be eating or with things about God are they preoccupied with circumcision or are they preoccupied with God and circumcising their heart not just the physical aspect of circumcision and finally where is their heart at is it on earthly things or not if it's on heavenly things good we look at verse 20 as we go on here by the way the deck is going to be probably larger than the the building today just to let you know when we finish the building we've got the deck to go to the the back porch the back porch will be larger than the than the house itself today so in verses 20 and 21 we talk about that their citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await the savior from there the lord jesus christ who by the power that enables enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Do you remember what I told you about Philippi at the very beginning of our study? What was Philippi that was unique to the rest of, of uh, the Greek peninsula? Do you remember? 
There was something about it in its relationship to Rome. Yeah, it was a Roman colony, and as such, everybody that was a, a citizen of Philippi was also automatically a citizen of Rome with all of the, the rights and responsibilities of being a Roman citizen. So when Paul starts talking about our citizenship is in heaven, and it's a, it's a ways away, you know, it's not right close by, it, it helped the Philippi. Philippians are going, yeah, it's kind of like our situation here in Philippi. We're Roman citizens, but what? We, we're, yeah, yeah, and, and we need to pay attention to what's going on in Rome. We, we need to know, we're, we're eager to hear the news from Rome. Are we eager to hear the news from heaven? Are we eager to study the word and see what heaven might have to share with us today? Or are we busy worrying about, you know, whatever's going on here on earth? Like, you know, the Iowa caucus. Just saying. Well, that, that was a, a special relationship because Rome's citizenship meant a lot of things to people back Yes, it did. Um, it's very different being from what we have today. Yeah. Pax Romana was a very unique situation. In other words, you messed with a Roman citizen, you messed with the might of Rome. Yeah. By the way, what else happened in Philippi about the whole idea of citizenship, Roman citizenship, and whether or not you were properly taken care of if you were a Roman citizen? Remember the book of Acts? First time Paul comes to Philippi, he gets thrown in jail. You remember what happens? There's an earthquake, right? He tells the the prison warden, "Don't bother to kill yourself. Everybody's still here." But do you remember what happens afterwards? Yeah, why? Because they messed they messed up. They didn't check to see if he was a Roman citizen. They treated him not like a Roman citizen. As such, he could have created all kinds of problems for Philippi, at least for the leaders of Philippi. So we have here, you know, there are people that are regularly awaiting the news from the capital so they know how to conduct their business. Are we readily and anxiously waiting to hear from God so we know how to conduct our business as we're citizens of another land? And if... It's kind of interesting. In, in, in the King James, this particular word, citizenship, is actually uh, translated conversation, which is, uh, again, the, the joy of, of language because language, the English language is alive, and uh, as such, uh, definitions change with the passing of time. And even in our own 
situation, we can think of words that had a particular meaning at one point, perhaps in our lives, and have now changed. And sometimes they've gone through two or three metamorphoses in, the, in what they mean today. Um, it's interesting when you go back and dive down and drill down a little bit into what this idea of citizenship is. It comes from, the, from an English word that we, uh, we all know, and, and this time, this season of the year is very popular, especially every four years. It's called politics. The, the, the Greek word here is the idea of politics. It's the idea of, uh, it has to do with one's behavior as a citizen of a nation. And Paul encourages us to have a spiritual mind. He does this by pointing out the characteristics of Christians whose citizenship is in heaven, just like Philippi is a colony, like our church is our colony. Years and years ago, I did, uh, uh, I was doing um, this Christmas, I think it was a Christmas production, yeah. And it was a celebration of the birth of Christ, right? So what we did is we actually sent out invitations as though we were an, an embassy. And we had an ambassador who was uh, greeting people. We had ambassadors and we had a receiving line as people came in. Uh, and they were met by the ambassador. And, uh, and so the church became an embassy. And we celebrated the birth of of our of our new what would be our new king you know and and the whole thing was centered around the idea that that as an embassy we represent we represent christ there was a i think it was here yeah it was years ago there was a video of uh, a woman in eastern europe i think it was in hungary do you remember this video and she had something about her house was an embassy of heaven or something like that remember that yeah, an older woman, yeah, yeah. So I think about how, are we, offering a citizen, are we offering an embassy for people to come to? And when they come here, do they find that they're greeted warmly and invited to come in, or are they told, no, they, they can't? The embassy is gonna help them hopefully get into, become a citizen. You know, you have to go to the embassy to apply for citizenship, right? Hmm. Or at least for a visa to get in. Yeah, if you're going to visit. Yeah, Rick. So, you know, ancient times, the idea of democracy was really foreign because typically people lived under the authority of a small number of people or maybe just a king. King or an oligarchy, right. yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. Some, some say that up to perhaps as many as uh, a third to two-thirds of the Roman Empire were um, slaves. Now, not slaves in the same sense as we had here, but slavery nonetheless where you had a master that owns you that uh, could tell you what to do and what not to do. In fact, one of the, the books um, uh, of, uh, that Paul writes, the, the book of Philemon, is written about uh, a slave who had ru- apparently run away from his master and then after running away came to Christ and Paul is now sending him back to his to his master. Um, boy, that's gotta be a tough thing. And the thing is Onesimus was willing to do it. 
The other thing, too, I think this text talks about is trying to encourage them if they follow certain things, it's going to be a frustration, too. Yeah. They're going to say, I can't, why can't I do that? Because you're trying to live like this and then you need to bring that, it's already in you to bring that out so you can live normally. I think that's part of this, too. <coughs> so I think, yeah. Not to encourage people so they don't get frustrated. There are certain things that, as a Christian, you wouldn't want to do as everybody else in the world does. You look around, and Sunday would be a good example. I don't know, several billion dollars in debt on that thing. Most Christians would want to do that. They would want to invest for it or anything like that. My point, my point is that going to survive every week or doing this every week and still you're not going in that people. Why aren't you going? Because you're trying to follow this, but it's not going to come back. It's more to help you because it talks about <coughs> Hebrews that uh, I've come to do your will. Yeah. I didn't come. And I know you don't, you're not excited about these sacrifices. I've come to fulfill the things that you want. Which is kind of interesting because uh, the, the fact is we are called to become like Christ and and this last couple of verses here is talking about that, where he's going to bring everything under his control, and he's going to transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. Think about this. This should give you hope for the future. It, it should also cause you to live a particular way because of what the future holds. Now, in the Greek, it's, we call that prolipsis. It's a future event that creates uh, us to think and to act a particular way in the present. The best that I can remind you of is remember all of the concern, and I hesitate to say the word hysteria of Y2K, what happens, and I mean, building up to that, people were, were all concerned about a future event as to what might happen and it affected them on, a pres on their present daily life as they prepared for the potential problem that would come. Think about living our life in a way that is based upon what is going to happen in the future. Just like when you get engaged, right, and, you, and, you're, and you're waiting to get married, you're thinking about the future and what's going to happen. And that affects how you do things up to the point of your marriage. So... Prolipsis is really important in the fact that we know that Christ says he will return, and when he does, he will make us, it will change our body into a glorious body. There is also anamnesis, which is, the, is, is something in the past that affects our present. I'll give you that example. What in the past should affect our present? What was it? Salvation. Salvation, yeah. The death on, Christ's death on the cross is a big effect on us in the present. We look back to that and it should change how we respond and how we act here in the present. So both anamnesis and prolipsis are important, but here specifically Paul is talking about this concept of prolipsis where he says, hey, this future, there is a great and glorious future that's coming and you don't want to miss it and you want to be preparing for it. It's like uh, Jesus uh, talks about the, uh, remember the virgins and they're, they're waiting for the bridegroom to come and some of them 
have their lamps and they have oil and others have been you know kind of messing around and just didn't get around to bothering to fill their oil lamps and now they want they want to borrow from somebody else why because they're not prepared what what are we to prepare for for the future event of the bridegroom coming how are we doing with our preparation for the bridegroom's return i tell you right now I'm not doing so well in some areas. I got some, I got some work to do. When I get here, you know, Ricky Ricardo's going to be saying to Lucy, you got some splaining to do, Lucy. You know, because why? Because I, I'm not as prepared as I should be in some areas of my life. I need to figure out, I need to get busy and get on the stick. And the only way that it happens is turning my life over to the power of the Holy Spirit and letting him work through me. I think we're going to be surprised we get to heaven and we find out, oh, you're here? <laughs> Is that going to happen a few times? I wonder how many people are going to walk up to me and go, you made it? here yeah yeah that's hard to even balance as, as we go forward sometimes it's hard not to drag the past behind sure to dwell on oh, yeah. Yeah. which is paul when paul says well think about what paul says i forget those things in the past, both the good and the bad. Yeah. I'm not concentrating on it. I'm concentrating on the future. I'm concentrating on the goal. Now, think about this. When we talk about the fact that we're going to have a body, a lowly body, some translations, anybody have a different word for that in verse 21? Uh, some say it's, uh, I'm trying to think what, what um, is that uh, some uh, one translation says a body of humiliation is what I was looking at instead of a lowly body. But we're talking about the fact that we are going to uh, that Jesus is coming. And when he comes, uh, he says that uh, he will put all things under his control. Um, one trans I think it might be the uh, King James says he will subdue all things unto himself. 
literally uh, the Greek there in this control is a, is a decent understanding of that, but it means to arrange in ranks. You're going to put everything in order. Uh, think about somebody who is, and I don't mean this in a bad sense, but in a good sense, an OCD kind of person. I used to have a, uh, a cousin, and he married this woman who was really, really, <laughs> I thought, OCD. Uh, you would open her cupboard, and every spice was done alphabetically throughout the entire, you know, uh, it, it just used to it just used to amaze me when I would go there. He was actually my dad's cousin. He was probably like my second cousin, then I guess. I would go to his house, and it was just pristine. And and you would walk in, and I mean, it was just so organized. It was over the top, in my opinion, you know. Uh, but it was it was kind of interesting to see. But but God says, Paul says that that Christ will put all things in order. He'll put all things in the ranks in the way that, where they should be. And then he goes on to talk about the fact that we're going to have our bodies transformed. That means that just to let you know, our bodies are not suited for heaven the way they are right now. They have to change. They have to metamorphosize. They, and it happens when Christ changes us. And when he does, we're going to be looking totally different and we will look like Christ, right? All right, I told you that uh, the, the house was going to be smaller than the, than the, the rest of the, the patio. So let's talk about the patio. Let's talk about how this appears when we try to look from first century to this century and then some application. And boy, I'll tell you, we're going to step in the application. It's going to be interesting. Um, you know, when we look at our time and we compare it to the first century, we've got to remember that uh, it's that prior to the day of Christ to arrive spiritually and against the disastrous side effects of not allowing this truth to sink in, we run into problems. And so the problem is we've got to make sure that this is both a warning and a blessing, a promise. Uh, there is There are two things um, that can happen. Uh, and there are two parallel, a true parallel between the ancient and modern context would be this. In Paul's time, the problem lay in commonly accepted notion of the world of human existence was, uh, was a changeable, unpredictable, and corruptible place that everyone would do well to escape from or to manipulate. Astrology and magic offered ways of controlling uh, the forces of nature and the forces of God. Remember we talked about the fact that in, in ancient times, if you knew the secret name of God, that you had power over that God. This was true in, in Egypt. It was one of the places I remember I ran across this in the study there, that if you knew the, the, the secret name, you could bend God to your will. Which is one of the reasons why we talk when we talk about you know that we do this in the name of Jesus, we're saying that we're taking upon ourselves to understand that this is what we believe that Christ would want done, not because we think that His name is magical, and it gives power, and if we do it in the name of Jesus, boom, it's going to happen. That's not what's happening there. It's as though you're a representative of, of God, a representative of Christ, and when you say we're doing something in the name of Christ, or we ask something in prayer in the name of Christ, we're saying that we believe that God, that, that, that this would better fit God's will than any other a action that could take place. 
And so we're asking that God would do this because we believe that in the name of Christ, this is what he would want. That'll change the way you pray about things. Because it suddenly, yeah. Yeah, that'll change a big portion of how I pray. You know, it's really tough when people ask me to pray for, for their, their sickness. I do. I do pray for it. But one of the things I ask is that God's will is done and that he gives us the grace and the mercy to accept whatever that will is. That's not always a fun conversation to have with people. And they, no, no, I want, I want God. What, remember, it isn't what you want. When Paul says in Romans 8, 28, that all things work together to, to good to them that love God, to them that are called according to his purpose, it's not talking about the fact that what you define as good versus what God defines. It's what God defines as good. And God's definition of good might be different than yours. Just saying. He has a different perspective than you and I do. He thinks, sees things from a, a whole different perspective. And it reminds me again, I've, I've told you this too many times that you're probably getting tired of hearing this, but my wife used to do counter cross stitch. I would sit across the room from her when she was doing counter cross stitch. And I would look at the back of that counter cross stitch and it was a mess. As far as I had no rhyme or reason as to what was going on. But when I walked around and looked at it from her perspective, there was a glorious picture that was emerging from the kind of cross stitch as she put in the various colors and as she counted and put, put them, a picture emerged that you could not see from the backside. Right now, whatever we're going through in our lives, we are looking at the backside of the canvas. We're looking at the backside of, of the kind of cross stitch. We don't know what the front looks like, but God has a perfect plan and what he's doing makes sense within his plan. And if we could see it from his perspective, we'd probably go, it's gotta be that way, it can't be any way else. And so it is good. Just that our definition and his, just slightly different. Yeah, well that works except for, you know, those of us that, are, that have a problem with worry, right? Right, right. Which means that they have peace that a shalom is different than, you know, God's shalom is, is overarching. It's a wellness that means even in the midst of whatever's going on, I can find peace, which is hard to do sometimes. I'm well, just that's saying. That's why we can't understand it. It passes all understanding. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Do you think Yeah, we do. We do. So, you know, in places like uh, uh, today, we have the situation where this idea of Eastern religion and thinking about the mind and being more important than, than the body becomes really a, a, a potential problem because the body is, we are made up of, I believe, three. Now, there are some theologians that say there are only two parts to us as, a, as humans. I believe in, in a trifold formula, body, soul, and spirit. I realize that some people combine soul and spirit. That's okay. I think that, that tr uh, trinities work better than dualities, but just saying. Um, you know, and when we get to heaven, we'll figure out who was right and who was wrong. But the thing is, we need to realize that we sometimes emphasize one over the other. Or we say that because 
the flesh doesn't matter and it's only the mind that matters, then we can do what? We can do whatever we want. So we're either legalists or licentious individuals who will do anything and everything we can because it doesn't matter. It's just the flesh. Everything, you know, uh, Corinthians 6, 1 Corinthians 6 says, everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Which is uh, kind of hard, you know, when you, you try to tell that, especially sometimes to young people. Well, yeah, okay, it might be permissible, but is it the best thing you could do? That doesn't matter. I can do it. It's, you know, I can do what I want. Well, not really. How does that work out for you when you get stopped by the police for going over the speed limit? What's it work out for you when you, you know, you uh, take a breathalyzer test and they realize that you are over the legal limit? You know, there are all these kinds of things that come into into playing. So, all right, let's see. Um, in, in some parts of our modern uh, church, we seem to to try to to merge uh, Eastern mysticism. Uh, magic, if you will, uh, new age uh, becomes important. And, and sometimes as a result of that, relig religions that make up new age movements give greater importance to the mind than to matter and greater weight on the imagination than on rational thinking. And the result is, as in ancient times, it often becomes what? Morally, moral relativism. And it, it, this was true in the past. It's true today. We talk about, well, you know, your, your truth and my truth might be different. No, there's only one truth. There is an absolute truth. <laughs> Evil is, a, is, is an illusion, they'll tell you. And salvation comes from within. No, it comes from through Jesus Christ. It doesn't come from within. I can't save myself. I, I, I just can't. I don't have the power to do that. But the other side of that is that th that the conservative parts of the church they want to go so extreme with their theological heritage that stems from the holiness movement from the the 19th century that they fall prey to an imbalance of understanding what God has accomplished and will accomplish for his people in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ sometimes we get so emphasizing on the presence of the eschatological age within the church that we that the result is uh, that they think that Christians should claim uh, that there should be no sick, sickness. There's, that they can, they can have everything they want. They can have physical wealth and physical healing. And, and all of the things that, that are, are bound up in God's laws of prosperity. Do this and God will do this. It doesn't always work that way. You know, we, we, a, a lot of us, there were a lot of people that prayed for Joe, Papa Joe's wife to be healed. She wasn't. Does that mean that none of those people had faith? Or did God have a different plan for her life and for Joe's life? Paul says that uh, he prayed three times to have some thorn in the flesh removed. It wasn't removed. Does that mean that Paul didn't have faith? F Paul didn't trust God enough? Or did God have a different plan for Paul that included that thorn in the flesh to help maybe humble him? help maybe him realize he needed to depend on God. How often have I walked into a situation and done those little flare prayers, oh Lord, if ever I needed you, I need you right now because I need the words to say and I have no idea what to say. So how do we, how do we combat both these? I think we combat it by this. 
we look at at Paul, we look at others like him who follow the pattern of behavior that he laid down, and we say, okay, therefore, I, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, he says, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I'm sending you to uh, Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord, and he will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus. So we need to follow Paul's example as he follows Christ's example. And then I think we need to realize that, that we have a new covenant. And the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant is the old covenant seems, even though we are saved by grace and we have always been saved by grace, the, new, the old covenant seemed to emphasize a lot more of physical works in order to get God's attention. Today, we need grace. Grace is more important than anything we could do. Remember, it says in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10, it's by grace that we've been saved, but we've been saved to do good works. We're not saved by our good works. So both are gracious, both demand that we do something, but not for salvation, but for the outworking of sanctification that God plans to do in us. That's how we do this. And secondly, he points out the fact that eventually, someday, God will return, Christ will return, and when he does, he's going to do what? He's going to change us into his, his image. All right, let's skip all that, and in the last few minutes, let's get into the area. That, <laughs> so in 1741, John Wesley preached a message. The message was on Christian perfection. It became one of the key factors in the Wesleyan movement, and it, divide, it, was, it was what caused the great divide, if you will, between the Reformed groups and the Wesleyan groups in the, on the whole issue of the doctrine of sanctification. Because it would appear that, Paul, that, that Wesley taught that it was possible for us to have a second working of grace, and when that happened, we would become sinless, this side of, the, this side of eternity. He said it kind of like, let's see if I can say this, the senses in which the believer continues to be imperfect, he said, are in ignorance or mistake or infirmities or temptations. But the believer can and should attain freedom from outward sin and from sins of the heart, including evil thoughts and evil tempers. He based it upon this passage in Ephesians chapter 3. The Reformed's response was to emphasize and focus on the depth and the complexity of sin's inroad in, into humanity and the present incompleteness of God's eradication of sin, both in the individual person and on earth. And they would point to passages like 1 John uh, 1, 8, and 9, where it says, if we say that we sin, we fool ourselves. But if we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father. And if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the question then becomes, who's right and who's wrong? I would say both are. Both are. The problem is when you emphasize one over the other. Can we live in a much more perfect lifestyle? And remember by perfect, I mean mature. Yes, we can. That's what we should be striving for on a regular basis. We don't give up the fact that God tells us that that's what we should be doing on a daily basis. But we also recognize that there's no way in the world possible that this side of eternity that we'll ever be fully and completely mature to the point of being without sin. 
So the balance lies in, in, in coming to an understanding that both are true and both extremes are wrong. So again, Dr. Bob Sr. used to say that, um, that when two good men disagree on scripture, that the truth usually lies somewhere in the middle. And you know, I, sometimes it might be closer to one side than the other, but it's still in the middle. And the problem is that one of the things that Paul says is keep talking. He, we talked about this last week. This is the fact that what we need to do is keep talking about these things that we are in disagreement on and see if we can't hammer out an understanding that makes sense for both of us. And if we don't, then we allow grace to take over and we give grace to people that are in disagreement with us knowing that they're still believers. Yeah. And regardless of how pious or how you're living, it doesn't change the fact that you're, you're not better than anybody else. We're all equal. And, you know, when I'm in Revelation, it's pretty straightforward. And you see that over the years, depending on how long you've been walking with the Lord. Yeah. Remember we talked about last week, we talked about the way that God defines forgetting is not to, is to no longer hold it to our account. It isn't that you can totally forget something. Okay, if someone, you know, if someone murdered your, your, your significant other, you're going to remember that. But will you come to the point where you can say, I'm not going to hold that to their account? That's what meaning forgetting is. That's different. That's part of forgiveness. And again, remember I mentioned to you that the way you can tell how well you're doing with your forgiveness is whether or not your blood pressure goes up when you think about it. <laughs> you know, there used to be times that I, that I, people did me wrong. And, you know, it, it took me, sometimes it took me a couple of years to get past that, you know, because I, it, it, I'd, it, I'd think about it and suddenly I'd get angry all over again. Well, I hadn't gotten to the past where I, I was able to forgive what they had done and to quote unquote forget it and not hold it against them. One last thought, uh, and I don't know if we got time to develop this. Anybody, has anybody ever heard of the, Ke uh, the Keswick Convention? Keswick Concepts of Christianity? Real, real simple, and I, I'm not in full agreement with them because what they say is that there are, they divide Christianity into two groups, subnormal and normal. Subnormal is people who are not mature 
and have not come to Christ or have not worked out their godliness. Uh, normal are those that are just, you know, able to hit it and just go. They're, they're the, the super Christians, if you will. I don't think that that's necessarily what God has intended. I think God's intention is for all of us to mature and that some of us just mature at different rates, but God's intention is all of us to mature, all of us to be better today than we were a year ago, to be closer to Christ. And the, to the degree that we do that, I think God is pleased. And I'll just close with this thought. Um, I think I had time to read two, two, two sections here. Some, because of their biological makeup and family history, struggle to keep in step with the spirit who indwells them. Others, because of their biological and environmental advantages, find it easier to keep the righteous requirements of the law under the spirit's power. A believer converted out of, desperate, out of a desperate situation may always look like a subnormal Christian to those who uh, divide believers into such groups. But in, in God's eyes, that person may be as faithful as the believer who has absorbed many of the Christian virtues during his or her upbringing and therefore finds it easy to follow the example of Christ. C.S. Lewis said this, that when we stand before God on the final day, all external advantages and disadvantages will, will dissolve, and our true selves, the part of us that, cho that chooses good or evil, uh, obedience or disobedience, will remain. And then we will see ourselves as we really are. And this moment of res uh, re revelation will contain some surprises. All right, let's close with a word of prayer. Father, thanks again for the opportunity to study your word. Thank you for uh, giving us a chance to understand that you're calling us to a life that is beyond what we are used to, uh, beyond what is expected here in this earth. Help us to realize that our citizenship truly is in heaven. And as such, we need to remember where our citizenship lies and it should affect us in every aspect of our lives. We pray that that would be true today, Father. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.